This episode of the Wolf of All Streets podcast is sponsored by Horizon, the HBAR Foundation, and Whalefin. Please stay tuned for more information on all three of them later in the episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, music, art, sports, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Uh, Today's guest absolutely needs no introduction and has been one of the favorites on the show before. Willie Wu is a famous on-chain analyst, has his own strategies and models, and has generally been nailing the market for many, many years. Willie, thanks so much for coming back on the show. No worries. Great to be back, Mr. Wolf. (laughs) I'm glad to have you. So listen, I don't want to get into too much into the specifics of what's happening in the market at this exact moment, but we've obviously seen some diminished, uh, some diminished price movement over the past few months. While there was a large expectation of a, I believe it was October, uh, Moonvember. I don't know what we were calling December, but obviously we've seen some price drop. Do you still think that the bull run is largely intact? Yeah, I think it's structurally structurally still intact. Um, but you know, December was you know I'm told it was um, going to be soft um, from the institutional money. Um, they want to cash out and book their profits, and um, a lot of the guys that um, want to redeploy. Uh, um, you know, I'm I'm hearing that that's kind of the January story. So, and also we've got the tax sell off kind of um, regime right now. So. Um, yeah, like these sort of news and narrative fundamentally weak um, for December. But, um, you know, like um, if we're looking over the next six months, um, structurally, it's pretty strong. Um, yeah. Like, and, you know, what gives me confidence about that is that um, there's really a lot of coins that have been moved to um, long-term holders who have held their coins for five months or more. And so um, they're at maximum accumulation. They're slowly divesting um, as they do, as the price runs up and they take some profits. But predominantly the coins are with the long-term holders and um, bear markets don't usually start until um, like the long-term holders are divested and they're now in the short-term holder sort of category where those weak hands are much more prone to dumping um, or selling out. and the last sort of um, crash we had from the, the you know, the 60, low 60s to the eventually the 29,000 was when um, we'd, we'd like, those long-term holders had completely exhausted. And um, so, yeah, like we're currently pretty charged up with those those guys holding onto their coins. So depending on how quickly they divest, um, I think we've got anything from three to six months of a run, um, maybe longer, just have to see. When you see them divesting, we generally see the same whales reaccumulating at the bottom, right? It's not an exactly. exit from Bitcoin. It's not an exit from the market. It's not disinterest in crypto. It's just an opportunity for them to make a whole lot of money, right? They see an opportunity to sell at a high, and they're the same ones rebuying and re- reinvigorating the new bull market. Exactly. And we're not really tracking individual participants in that kind of model. Um, so I see it as like different waves of people coming in. Um, they come in, they hold, they wait for the rally, they take their profits. And, um, you know, the the if you go back um, and you look at five months from now, that was really in the $30,000 range after it dumped. And those guys, you know, howled up to now and they're divesting and taking their profits. And 
um, was very similar the last sort of five months. So these these alternating cycles where new people come in, they get they get the run, they sell, and then um, people buy into the rallies and um, they experience the dump sometimes, and then they they get their turn. Um, but in this case, there's other data that I'm looking at that's uh, it's it's showing. I, I think you know it's the guys that dumped at the sixty thousand when we went down to twenty nine back in May, um, they were like first, these kind of people that were accumulating and then they completely dumped out. And now with more of the forensics um, metrics, the supply shops where we can actually see the different categories of um, holders, um, a whole lot of you know strong-handed accumulators were lost. And then they sort of popped up in um, the speculative swing trade um, sort of um, metrics. So I, I, I think what's happened is a lot of the smart, you know, well, well-backed money, um, whether they're hedge funds or family offices, did buy the $10,000 um, range and into 20,000, sold at the 60, and then they reaccumulated as it was coming down from the 40s to the 30s. So there's, we've got a lot of, um, seems like sophisticated swing traders now that um, are playing the market. So it's looking quite different from what we saw in 2017 and the cycles before. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting, this whole cycle. Never seen anything like this before. What do you think accounts for the fact that it's changed so much? Is it because the market's becoming more efficient or we're getting more sophisticated players, right? Perhaps before the whales were, you know, young traders who had just gotten rich in the early uh, 2010s. And uh, now we're getting, you know, institutional guys with, uh, you know, complicated algorithms that are taking tools from other markets and coming in. I mean, is that part of the institutional wave? Yeah, I think that's it, Scott. I, I think like if you were to look back in the deep history of geological Bitcoin time, um, really the early guys were the 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 techos, you know, the um, the guys that mined it, and then you know we had the Silk Road and so forth. We had the libertarians. You had um, the very early smart money, I think, came in 2016-17 when it started, you know, Bitcoin articles popped up around the Winklevoss ETF in 2017 and um, saw a lot of um, that kind of, um, you know, like cohort come in. And then um, now, then we had the derivatives come in with the BitMEX and the engine of the perpetual swap and like and by I'd say 2019, 2020, we had the infrastructure here for institutionals. And so now we've, we're um, really deep into this where we've got family offices, we've got uh, <clears throat> large hedge funds, um, mutual funds, um, now sovereign wealth sort of coming in, like El Salvador's uh, the first sovereign nation to accumulate. And so it's a lot different and the instruments are different now. We've got... Um, not only the, the perps, but we've got um, very well-developed um, options and futures markets. Well, options aren't quite as liquid, but they're coming. And you've got the ETF that backs onto the CME, um, like a regulated US exchange. So a lot of um, institutions worldwide uh, are deploying through like futures instruments um, because it's re fully regulated and it's very easy for them. So I think that's the whole thing's changed, right? And how that demand and supply filters through to the underlying asset is um, through a different chain. And, um, you know, like anyone who's been in the market since 2018 noticed 
has noticed that the, the price shape has changed and the, the moves are very sharp and the liquidation events. And that's a signature of, um, you know, futures um, being dominant. And so it's a, it's a very different kind of environment now. And um, yeah, it's much more complex. Yeah, it's much more complex. And, you know, as you sort of touched on, futures are driving the market, but it still feels like we're very early in what could be as far as the complexity of the derivatives that are available and, you know, the size that people are trading with, which is encouraging in my mind, right? I, eventually, I think there's still a whole lot of inefficiencies in the market. That's why we see these liquidation cascades because big players still know how to make a whole lot of money by, you know, moving the market. I think eventually that's all going to disappear, which is probably better for investors and institutions, but probably will actually make it a less exciting market for traders. Yeah, I, I think a part of the, you know, what you might call excitement is um, the majority of the volume is unregulated. And so <laughs> there's all sorts of fun trader tactics to shove the price around, which, you know, aren't that kind of outlawed and regulated exchanges. Um, so, um, what we see in Bitcoin a lot is, um, some of the large players and, you know, putting up buy walls, sell walls, um, and kind of shepherding the price around, which is a lot harder to do in a regulated environment. Um, so it is, it is particularly volatile because, you know, <laughs> large whales are out there to like take you out. Um, they're looking at where retail's um, positioned and they're going, well, they're vulnerable, let's take them out. And so... That's the game that's creating this volatility. And um, on the other side of that, you've got this crazy amount of inefficiency that's built up as the price wicks thousands of dollars over a minute. And, um, you know, um, that opens um, a lot of spreads that can be closed by arbitrage plays. And, and so you can get this other side where traditional people don't, you know, some institutions don't want to be exposed to Bitcoin, but they they see the kind of yields that they can get by running ARB across the inefficiencies. Um, and so now we've got like people who are not even interested in Bitcoin coming in because they 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 can they just want to pick up the money. Like they can get 20, 40, 60, 100% plus annualized yield on the US dollars, which kind of shits all over anything you can get in the traditional world. Um, so, you know, that's bringing more players in. It's bringing, they generally have to hold the underlying and a lot of the strategies they're doing. So um, it's bringing money into the system. Um, like the volatility is almost a, um, you know, a honeypot to bring in traditional money who's not even interested in Bitcoin. Yeah, and which is so interesting when you put it in that context because the big story for the maximalists and those of us who've been around for a while, it was always MicroStrategy and Tesla. They're buying Bitcoin and they're putting it on their balance sheet. And we haven't seen much of a repeat of that, right? And I think there was this expectation that we would keep seeing companies buying. But to your point, that's not really where the money is to be made, right? If you're a, if you're a hardcore believer in the inflation hedge, maybe you buy Bitcoin, and put it on your balance sheet. But right now, Institutional's money is coming in, but not in the way that maybe many people expected. They're coming in, as you said, like with the free free money on a cash and carry trade, arbitrage strategies like that. But also you look at the amount of VC money that's pouring in and it's absolutely insane. Every single day I see some news report of some fund raising another billion dollars or some new unicorn. I think that's 
really the institutional adoption narrative now. It's them investing in the picks and shovels approach, investing in the exchanges and the infrastructure and the platforms. And they don't even, why buy Bitcoin if you can buy a company that's going to be huge for pennies on the dollar? Yeah, like there's the picks and shovels in the VC game. Um, they're probably not interested in Bitcoin now. Like Bitcoin, we do 100x from now. It's um, $5 million per coin. And, um, you know, 100x isn't that exciting to a VC. They're interested in 1,000x. They're uh, over eight years, five to eight years, they want 1,000x. And so why not back something that's nice and take high risk and um, get that kind of return? Um, you know, People who bought, I don't know what, was Solana bought it? Solana's seed round was 20 cents and it went to $250. Yeah. Right, that so was the third, I, it, right? Yeah, I just talked to Kyle Samani yesterday about that. And I think they had three rounds, he said, didn't he, as he recalled it, four cents, five cents, and 20 cents was the last round. And they, right. they led all of them. So Yeah, so now that's the stuff. You can see why that kind of institutional money is coming in. I mean, that translates to a lot of development in, you know, experiments of DeFi layer one protocols. And, um, you know, I'm all for that, actually. Um, I'm like, I, I like the innovation that's happening. Um, I think, you know, in the Bitcoin ecosystem, we, we like to, well, we dislike this kind of stuff because we're so um, viewed as anything that's not Bitcoin is, you know, running a Ponzi scheme, which, you know, it's legitimate. There's... You know, you look at some of the DeFi projects and they're offering a few million percent APY or whatever. They're, run, they're running this thing to suck in um, a lot of people into getting these yields. And then it's a, you know, it does become like a, um, you know, like a game of chicken who gets out first. Um, sure. So there's a I'll lot of that, up. but there is a lot of innovation that's happening as well. And I think um, that, that bit's exciting. Um, but yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's like um, a lot of institutional money is coming through VC side. Um, I actually think with MicroStrategy, they brokered this or they broke into this area and now they're brokering this and that. Um, now it's very easy to buy um, a convertible bond offering from MicroStrategy or even just buy the underlying stock for a, if you're an S&P 500 company and you want to some sort of bitcoin exposure just why not just click one button buy <laughs> call up the broker buy the uh, micro strategy offering whatever that is whether it's a bond or the underlying um equity and you don't have to deal with like figuring out cold storage the regulations because regulations are already there you can buy stock you can buy a bond offering for your treasury it's just and it cuts six months from your um you know you know, due diligence work you have to do from, um, at a, you know, at a board level. So, like, I, I, I don't think that when MicroStrategy is buying more and more and more Bitcoin that it's just, like, high net worth investors. I actually think um, this is Fortune 500s um, buying in. Um, yeah, I agree. Why do it yourself if you can let Michael do it for you, right? Yeah, Michael's going to do it for you and he's happy to do so, right? Um, so yeah. we should be celebrating, oh, another company bought it and we don't know who it is. but And that's probably good on the um, buying side because they don't they want that level of, um, you know, privacy around um, their treasury. Potentially, I don't know. I don't know enough about yeah. how um, public op um, companies operate and um, exactly how they place their treasury, but... Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and I think what's so interesting also about sort of these VC deals and the opportunities to get in early that people don't realize, you know, if you buy, uh, if you invest venture capital into a company and you're waiting for, not in crypto, and you're waiting for some sort of exit event, right, to be able to cash in, that's always been the model. You invest, you pray, you hold for a really long time. In most of these VC deals or coins, people are actually getting liquid relatively fast. It doesn't mean that they're selling, but they actually have assets that they actually have access to their coins, right? So in theory, you get the benefit of being early and you get the flexibility to exit whenever you want. I mean, that's got to be very, very attractive to institutional money that hasn't experienced that before. Yeah, it's like they cuts the investment cycle down by a third, you know, like usually maybe let's call it six years to get to a liquidity event. Now it's like two years, sometimes one, a lot of the vesting schedules around one year. So it starts to get ridiculous because the discounts are so high that it's just a no brainer. It's just very little risk, Um, especially if you're a large VC, put your name on it your clout will just literally open doors, um, community will rally into it. So it's a way of monetizing your clout. Um, you should be able to get an easy 10x upwards if you just want to dump the first listing. And so, um, yeah, it's it's um, it's a definitely an unfair advantage. I think of, if you were to run a fund, um, I see these two kind of very repeatable ways of making money. One is the VC side where you're closest to the projects. No one else can get access. So you've got Without you. Yeah. The other side is the trades you can't lose, which is arbitrage. You know, that's the Alameda's of this world that run up market making. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're like, you know, quant traded computer algorithms. And so every trade is a winner. And everything else is taking a lot of risk, you know, like directional risk. So, like, I think those are the two areas of, like, if you're going to run a fund, that these two are repeatable. One is the VC game, which you know, takes a year, and it's more liquid than what they used to, but it's still, uh, but it's mainly liquid. They have to wait. Um, yeah. The other is the extreme liquidity, um, and everything else is what I guess. Most retail traders have to. Um, just say business. everybody else is swimming somewhere in the middle with yeah, uh, yeah. sharks That's on one side, I guess, and whales on the other, just trying to survive like a game of yeah. Frogger. You know, well, the rest, the thing. rest are um, really, really effectively the, the food, <laughs> the food yeah. chain. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so true. But you, you mentioned before when we were talking more about Bitcoin, uh, obviously that the longer term holders have moved their coins into cold storage and they're not really divesting as much at the moment. One of the huge narratives, and you said the word supply shock, right? Supply side shock. That's been one of the huge narratives over the past few months, but I haven't really heard anyone talking about that as much anymore. Do you, is, is it still happening and it's just ceased to be a narrative or is that or is there's been something that's changed on the supply side? There's something that has definitely changed. Um, we, we're constantly seeing more and more coins move off the exchanges. And um, the weird things happening, right? Um, price isn't following. And, um, you know, I use Glassnode data um, and they have something called liquid supply. And it also measures like, it, it kind of does a forensic trace of all of the participants and figures out all the addresses and goes, oh, that's one person, that's one person. And, and then let's look at the history and they can kind of categorize the guys that aren't selling and the guys that are semi-selling and the type guys that are totally speculative. 
in their right. wallet activity. And um, it used to be for a long time, the illiquid guys that are just stacking um, was very correlated to the exchange um, the exchange um, balances. Like as more and more coins got went off the exchanges, um, you know, they, they were actually, you know, liquid supply, the liquid supply was tracking that very closely. But nowadays it's not, there's a divergence. I'm not sure what that is. Maybe this new animal of swing traders are, um, you know, they're pulling off to the exchanges. I'm not sure yet, but if you, uh, when I look at supply shop, I really look at the um, liquid supply. We've got a forensic trace of their behavior and um, we're not at the levels we were prior to May. Um, it looks like that if you were to run the calculation using Glassnode's workbench, but um, there's some amount of drift that happens with that data. Because if you think about how, you know, if you were to withdraw money into a new address, you have no clue whether that's a new person right an existing person and eventually you go oh no no that's that's bob <laughs> we can see that now so it wasn't um, a new person and so there's you'll find that um it's over optimistic as coins moving into a new to a new wallet that's obviously a liquid because you've never seen them spend those coins and then later you go oh no that's the that's bob you know someone we know and then so there's a natural drift down in the liquid um supply as that that data hardens up um so like if you were to run the calculations, it says we're all-time high, we're at all-time high of supply shock. But if you account for that drift, um, which I do, and it was surprising, we're not, we're, we're about, um, you know, the, the kind of supply shock we had back in um, January, December, um, back when the price was maybe 40,000 to 50, thousand i would say 50 to 55,000 45 let's say 45 to 55,000 is the level of supply shock that um that uh were were historically at um it's not at all time high nothing like we had at say march of this year so right. um, i'm still waiting okay. for that Good. to recover you know um, yeah. yeah so that means that we've still got uh, some more upside which is a good thing yeah, I mean, I'd like to us to break through that all time high and just keep going. Um, but yeah, it's but like what what you don't want to see is that start to you know move to the other side where it's reducing because that's that's kind of a lot of softness in the market and um, it's been strengthening and just this with this recent just prior to the recent dip, there's there was a little bit of softening in that um, supply shock, uh, but nothing to be like to say we're going to crash right now. Um, so I'm waiting for that to strengthen a lot through to January. But that said, all of the models that have become so popular that have specific prices attached to specific dates, right? Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, it doesn't matter, right? What matters is the overall trend, the things that you're talking about. It doesn't matter if we hit this price by this day. That doesn't invalidate for, I think, a lot of new people. You know, I love Plan B. I love Plan B. Obviously, you know, um, but a lot of new people saw like a, him nail that price for a few months and then acted on the assumption that, you know, 98K in November, 135, 65, whatever it is in December were inevitable, right? And yeah. I think if you've been here a while, you might say those prices actually are inevitable. Just be a little more patient. Yeah, anything can happen in these markets. I had a full model too, you know, I had a full model and that broke. Um, 
I know, technically, in my view, it didn't break. Um, <laughs> I'll yeah. just tell you that it didn't break. Like the model only works during a bull market. And when that breaks, it's early signs of a bearish market. And it broke when $50,000 broke. And then we cascaded down. And we're not actually in a bull market right now. We're setting up for a bull market because that model's not crossed over into um, a floor that will hold yet. Um, and yeah, like with the these new derivative instruments, like, Man, you know, what do we, we we crashed from six thousand to three thousand back in twenty tail end of twenty eighteen, right? Um, that's the power of derivatives, you know. It was like forty eight hours and a three thousand dollar drop, fifty percent drop, um, and that's going to break any model. Like like my models work off on chain and fundamental spot demand, and you kind of think of that as like what the price will mean revert around. Like if you can build a model around demand and supply on chain, that's where the you know, long-term investors want to hold, like, value it. And when it drops lower, then eventually they come in and they buy it up. And they'll, yeah, so then it gets too high, maybe they'll sell some. But um, everything else is a random walk of, you know, it used to be liquidations of um, retail on BitMEX, and now it's liquidation of retail on Binance. And it's just crazy whipsawing, and there's no sense to the market other than this game of traders using huge leverage to take the other guys out um, until you get too far. You know, you get too far out of that, then the fundamentals do come in and people will spot buy um, and FOMO in. Like we didn't recently, you know, when we had that latest pullback um, below 40, um, even 42 on some exchanges, mm -hmm. um, retail bought that really. They, they went and bought it spot. You could see that on chain. So um, the models work. Um, they work, but they, any kind of price target, it's risky business. Um, and time, you know, timing, like you say, like it's, the stuff is very much, um, you know, no one can predict price and time. If you, you do it, you're lucky. If you do it consistently well, then you're probably a whale making sure that your bet um, wins, which you do in options market, right? We know that. We right. know that. I'm betting on this strike price. Let's make that happen. And then I get my cash out and then I'll let it go find its norm again. So, um, yeah, but what you just described, I mean, that's the argument for the end of the 2017 bull market, right? Was that CME futures were launched, and it was very and, and it was relatively illiquid on the future side. But you could guarantee, basically, if you had enough Bitcoin, you could very much easily guarantee that your futures bet was going to be correct. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. It's it's so you know going back to this whole um, time and price, which everyone on Twitter seems obsessed with. I get on a lot of shows, and um, they say this price target, that price target, and it's like no, I just gave a model, and that's what the model spits out on upper bound if we top out at this random date. Um, but like, um, it doesn't matter for an investor. Like you don't right. really want to know time and date. That's kind of like the new, the, 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 the new becoming in going, when it hits this price, I'm going to sell. Um, and they don't. Because <laughs> you're wrapped up in emotion. And what you need to know, what's much more valuable is, are we currently in an area of strength? Yes, good, buy more. Is it softening? Okay, take that into consideration when I have to rebalance. Maybe I'm gonna like, you know, consider 
uh, my risk. You know, everything is about adjusting your risk, um, you know, your risk exposure. So yes, we're in a strong market, then we can allocate more. Uh, we may even add some leverage, small amount of leverage. You know, I always say, if you're going to add leverage, then um, unless you know really know what you're doing and doing like 3x, 10x, I'm going, you want to um, handle any kind of pullback or even 50, 60% of your leverage. It means it's way yeah. low leverage. Yeah. Um, One X, two X. Yeah. It's all risk. Um, it's all about risk. Like a, a, I've seen many traders go win, 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 and then um, they think they're, they're, they're better than the rest of the market, which they probably are by winning trade after trade, but then they're wiped out and fully liquidated in the zero, you know? Yep. And that's all just um, handling risk. And so that's what this these models are really um, best used for. It's like, we're in an area where you can go risk on because it's strong. Strong here is risk off and then take some money off the table, um, reallocate. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm even a... I know we hate and we shit on fiat, but I, I, you know, I still have a ten percent bucket and cash at all times. I, I, I believe in fifteen. I believe in yeah. fifteen. You can't, you can't buy the dip if you don't have money, right? And, yeah. and furthermore, right. we now live, we're now in a market where you can park USDC or USDT or whatever with yield instead of going to dollars, right? That's, that's I, I'm on, right. Um, exactly. I'm exactly saying ten percent is my minimum. If I'm below ten percent, I add more, and it's always in yield and um, I'm trying to get above the money printing um, rate, which is I think 37% year on year currently. So if you can get a 37% yield, <laughs> good luck to you. But can. Um, we, can, we can in these markets, right? Um, we can. Um, so, I mean, I, as long as my cash is getting yield, that is somewhat close to the inflation monetary dilution rate, I'm fine parking in cash and like, you know, I, I think 15 is, that's actually my target as well. 10% is the bare minimum. Um, that is my threshold. Um, yeah. So I like yeah, to I target, I mean, it, listen, it, it changes a lot, you know, and I don't rebalance as much as I always did, but I always believed, you know, 70% investments don't touch it. For me, that was always Bitcoin sort of became some Ethereum and whatever was left over from great trades, right? Otherwise, 15% to speculate and 15% in cash. But that was emotionally so much more difficult in previous cycles when you didn't have the yield. To me, that's like yeah, mo yeah. maybe the most groundbreaking thing that nobody talks about in this market is that in 2017, when I wanted to take profit, I had to somehow suffer through mentally the idea of going into dollars. And the whole reason I was in Bitcoin was because I didn't want dollars. But now, like I said, you go into USDC, okay, even conservatively 10% just sitting there, who cares? That's great. 10% a year, you know, 10 years ago, if you told an investor, you can get 10% a year guaranteed on your money forever. Your money will double every seven years. You'll be rich if you're in your 20s. You'll be rich. The future of cryptocurrency is a multi-chain world, and you can't have a multi-chain world without Horizon, who allows these chains to be interoperable. Horizon is the zero-knowledge-enabled network of blockchains powered by the largest node system, larger than either Bitcoin or Ethereum, with scalability and flexibility unmatched by others. Blockchains built on Horizon are enhanced by ZK-SNARK privacy tech and provide massive throughput without compromising decentralization. Horizon can support up to 10,000 independent blockchains running in parallel and issue an unlimited amount of tokens. That's why huge projects that you love, like Celsius, Dash, IOTA, GameStation, Hero Engine, and LTO Network are all building their blockchains with Horizon. 
Anyone can build on Horizon using their platform Zendu, and Horizon is going to issue their own first token on Zendu this year, Zenny Token. If you're not familiar with all the amazing things that this project is doing, check them out at thewolfofallstreets.link slash Horizon. That's H-O-R-I-Z-E-N. Do it now. Everybody in cryptocurrency already knows about Hedera Hashgraph. It's one of the fastest, most secure, and trusted networks on the planet. But what they might not know about is the HBAR Foundation. With a budget of $2.5 billion already, they are funding entrepreneurs and projects that want to build on their blockchain and build within the ecosystem. Absolutely incredible. And they're not only giving them funding, they're actually helping them to develop it and then to get the word out as well. You guys should check out the HBAR Foundation and what Hedera Hashgraph is doing. You can do all of that at thewolfofallstreets.link slash HBAR. That is thewolfofallstreets.link slash HBAR. Do it now. If you're looking for a place to invest in crypto and to trade with and without leverage, earn yield all backed by institutional grade security, then look no further than Whalefin. Whalefin is a new product powered by Amber Group. It combines the institutional grade features of the Amber Pro and the intuitive user interface and features of the Amber app. As we enter the metaverse, individual wealth is being built and managed in totally new ways. Whalefin is an all-in-one digital asset platform serving as the gateway to the metaverse and your secure digital wealth partner. Guys, Whalefin combines the world's best investing technology with valuable investment research. It provides the best prices from 100 plus exchanges and venues, all, as I said, with institutional backing and institutional grade security. If you're looking for more information and the perfect platform for trading and investing, then please go to www.thewolfofallstreets.link slash whalefin. That's slash W-H-A-L-E-F-I-N. Check them out now. Yeah. it's. I, I think it's, you know, right now, the kind of yields we can get out of here is like it's the golden era of yields in crypto. Um, it's going to go down. Yeah. It's going to go down. There's, there's more players come in to, to um, effectively pull, um, you know, the efficient inefficiency out of the market. There's two types of yields in crypto. One is the Ponzi yield, um, which is in DeFi. Um, you know, I'm going to create this thing and I'm going to get the community in buying the token and then I'm going to incentivize them by printing tokens out of thin air. And so that's creating yield and you're making it by selling those tokens to the new guys coming in. Um, and so you can get the, you know, 10,000% yield on that. Um, but you got to watch your <laughs> fundamental risk of smart contract hacks and being rugged. Um, but then there's the real um, yield that's... Um, you know, maybe if you're going to put something into BlockFi or Celsius, effectively that money is going into these markets um, through institutions that are doing quant strategies to, you know, ARB, all sorts of things from, you know, the options to the futures to the spot to the, um, to, you know, like running, um, you know, volatility um, positions. So there's all sorts of things you can do in these markets now that they're sufficiently sophisticated to generate this yield. And anyone who's getting yield through like a retail provider like that, that money is actually finding its way into these um, these institutional um, contractors that are extracting fifty to one hundred percent per annum. Um, so yeah, like crazy. Crazy. it's like yeah, that beats forty percent. It's a lot of work to beat the the Fed printing money, but it can be done. Um, so, um, and I only know this to be done within crypto or, you know, very 
closed um, proprietary funds, quant funds on Wall yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think people just don't realize how it's happening. You just described it. And most people just kind of, you know, cool, I'm getting yield. And they don't think about how that might be happening. I mean, at the answer is these, these platforms are either they have a trading desk, right? And they're getting it themselves, right? They're, they're actually actively pursuing these trades. Like I said, sort of largely the cash and carry or for a long time, the GBTC premium or whatever is the uh, flavor of the month. Mm -hmm. And then the rest are literally just lending it with high interest to people who need money to short, right? Or they have to be able to short as a part of their strategy, right? As a part of that strategy. So as yeah, long as the inefficiencies last, the yield lasts, but once those trades start to disappear, the yield is going to go with it. I mean, block yield their yields go to almost nothing. That's right. It's, you can see the swings in the yields we get, um, particularly if you're on exchange and you're spot lending, and that they very much respond to those kind of the yields that are available in the market. Um, and, you know, it's really what you're doing is providing leverage, whether it's someone to short the market or actually to these quant traders that are extracting 100% and they go, well, I'll borrow 10% up without collateral. Um, and um, I can run, you know, a 2x leverage minus 10% funding rate per annum. Maybe I'll go 3x and then I can really juice this thing from my original 40% cash and carry to 160 with forex leverage and then you're really starting to outperform bitcoin at that point um, with very little downside um so yeah there's it's um there's many ways to slice this in in bitcoin um in crypto um we think um hodlers retail think we're smart because we're hodling which is great because you're stepping off the bus being um killed by the whale trader who's gonna take you because um, you're hodling, you're invulnerable to being um, completely squeezed out of the market with the liquidation. But uh, there's also the quant traders that are um, able to get these kinds of um, yields with leverage with the funding markets. Um, and if you can get above 110% APY, um, that's effectively Plan B stock to flow ratio going up, stock to flow model going up to 2026. So. That's kind of what we're expecting, 110% per annum um, over the years ahead. Um, these quant traders are actually, you know, doing that. Like the proprietary yeah, why ones not? are and no downside. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of makes you realize when you really dig into it that, I mean, retail traders just have no chance, right? I mean, you're... <laughs> You're, you're a tiny little fish in this in this world of yeah. sharks and whales and you know you, you're offered all this leverage and we all look at our charts and we look at whatever models we have and you try but the reality is at any given moment everything can change because one guy decides it's fun time <laughs> yeah if one guy decides it's fun time they're waiting for the opportunity and no they can't always do it it's just when the opportunity presents right. itself yeah yeah they'll yeah. do it absolutely but so Historically, though, anytime you see this massive leverage rinse, even if it continues down or it shakes the market, those have generally been the best buying opportunities because, as you said, you have your models that are based on on-chain metrics and on spot. They get, quote unquote, broken temporarily by leverage, but they always mean revert, right? So isn't the mean reversion trade of retail and leverage being eliminated from the market one of the best trades you can possibly make? Yeah, I think so. And that's the that's exactly what's happening this last this current week. And I'm seeing retail actually doing it. We we had as it was dumping, um, the retailers were um buying it up. The guys with um, 
anything under one Bitcoin was really sucking up those coins and moving into their wallets. So um, yeah, retail is kind of retail um, by the dip, you know, accumulators are, are, are trading like geniuses through this, this market. Love it. Love to see and, it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's great, right? If you, you're not going to sell, we will never sell, Max Kaiser. Yeah. <laughs> you don't never sell, you're hodling, you're immune to this kind of um, kind of fuckery by, by the big whale traders and um, you buy the dip, you win on the other side. It's the other guys that want to take extreme risk and trading against them and getting squeezed out of the market, they're, they're giving the coins to the hodlers and obviously the, the whale trader. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, that's the best. Um, I mean, it, it hasn't changed through the years. The huddle strategy wins for retail. Um, yeah, but even last time you and I spoke, you were talking about the fact that there was supply side shock, price hadn't caught up. You gave examples of when that happened in the past. Basically, these mean reversion trades. Anytime price is lagging, what's happening fundamentally? I mean, forget even the leverage rinse. That's obviously a good one. But you've said in the past you predicted the last bull run on our. On, in our conversation, right? You said, listen, like it's, uh, it hasn't happened yet. The price hasn't moved, but this is what's happening. People are moving their coins off. The big whales are, are, are accumulating and then price followed. Yeah, I forget what I said, but I'm glad it played out. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, no, it's like, when you could even see it, right? You totally see it. Like, um, and everything was underpriced. And I've never seen it so out of whack before. It was fundamentally... Yeah priced at 50,000 when it was in the 30s for, for so long. It's like, man, that's a, almost a 2x trade there. If you're just happy to not leverage it up, you really need to know what you're doing if you're trading on leverage. I haven't been like, I've been trading since 2014, um, the crypto markets, and I don't think I was consistently profitable to 2019, 2020. Um, oh, same. You know, it's like, it takes a lot of years. You know, you go, I'll win, I'm winning, I'm winning. And then bang, something happens. And you, oh, I'm losing. <laughs> Everyone's a genius so, in a bull market, right? I came in yeah. in late 16 and 17 and I thought I was the God tier trader. And then uh, that it, yeah. it happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Like the bear market makes, you know, and I, we were even saying in 2017, oh, I can't wait for this bear market. Like we're kind of getting tired and not getting I'm seeing sleep, that sentiment now. I'm seeing that sentiment now, actually, from like people who are building. They're saying, I need a break to actually like focus on development and business and not just be like consumed with price action. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, and I, I think um, it's like, it's all kind of bad news because I, I can't see a, um, a one year bear market again. Um, like, I think with the advent of this new sophistication in the market, it's a lot harder to get a, um, you know, a, a mania and a blow off top, which, you know, when it gets that out of bounds, it takes a year to mean revert back to where it should be and go below and then come back up. <laughs> um, so like, I think what we've got right now is like these big um, um, sort of collapses of 50% in a multi-month, maybe three or four months of recovery. Well, we bought it. took us what three months and then another like yeah from two May. months to recline. So it's yeah. like that. Um so it's it's kind of here to stay, is my opinion, that I don't think we're gonna have this four-year blow off top and then one year gap. Um it's just the always on phase now. And I'll take it. It literally is, right? Like yeah. It's funny the last yeah, the last drop, I'll tell you a funny story. The drop recently from 53 to 42 was during Art Basel in Miami. I was there. And so 
there was this huge party. Diplo, Diplo was like DJing this huge outdoor venue and it was sponsored by FTX. It was their huge thing and everyone was there, right? Everyone was in Miami. And so we're in line maybe midnight, Friday night. So, you know, Saturday morning and the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And like nobody's phone works. Nobody's like you can't get any service. And all of a sudden you hear this ripple through the crowd of like 3,000 people like Bitcoin's crashing, Bitcoin's crashing, Bitcoin's crashing, right? <laughs> and you see like all these people trying to get service, doing the thing where you put your phone up in the air and trying to figure it out. And what's funny is like, so it went from 53 and then somebody was screaming, I can't believe it hit 50 and it had already hit 42, right? right? So everybody thought it had crashed like, you know, eight, 9% and it had gone all the way down to 42 and it took hours for people to be able to get service and figure it out. So it was like, there was this massive party going on. All of FTX minus like Sam is there, right? right? Uh, the, the, the CEOs of all the other exchanges and whatever. And it was just this hilarious event where they were all in one place where it almost felt like somebody was trolling Knowing that, like, because you see people like people were like trying to see if they had been liquidated. If, like, like one, I was with uh, my friend uh, Colin, random task who works at Hero Mags Capital, and he was like, I had a limit stop order on a leverage position. I don't like it, wasn't a market stop. I wonder if it hit or if I got liquidated. It was just this like crazy mayhem. And then it was like by morning when everybody woke up where they could actually, um, sort of uh, figure out what had happened, but being in a place like that while something was a like emotional i was laughing like my wife even turned to me she was like do we we have anything to worry about i was like and i joked diamond hands you know like uh (laughs) i'll I'll sit at the club i was like whatever but like it was very very entertaining to see it in that environment it's almost a caricature yeah it's like it is you couldn't have drawn it better like you could literally couldn't have drawn it better so earlier you touched on the fact you actually said sort of like casually and in passing, well, we're not in a bull market right now, right? We're in a bear market. For you, what is the definition of bull and bear market? How do you determine that? I mean, obviously there's the classic definition down 20% for the top for more than three months in the stock market. Maybe they say that's a bear market, right? So I guess everybody has their own way of viewing that. Yeah, I use my own definition when I say that. Um, like I'd say we're not in the like the main run of a bull um, market like there's a main run phase where it's just gonna go up um, the momentum's strong um we're in a we're just coming out of reaccumulation um like we just had this massive sell-off in may um the sideways um, reaccumulation has happened and then there's that sort of tentative um first climb out and you know often there's another sort of accumulation and then we're off to the races and that's everything's strong and that's the main phase of the bull run um we're not there yet um we're we're recovering we're recovering um and setting up for it um and so i think we're not going to get that till 2022 um you know early phase january february might be interesting but yeah we're still waiting so that sort of explains why we had like, you know, a 65K top in May. And then we had this kind of new bull run, but it really only got slightly past that. Right. And then, you know, maybe there was some yeah. doubt and, and the market kind of dipped back again. So maybe we get that put in that higher low here, you know, after that uh, 30K's reaccumulation, and then we can get off to the races. For me, like losing 53 area, you know, had sort of been the higher high. That's where I sort of have taken some pause and it made me think, we might kind of be here for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be consolidation for another month at least, probably more. Um, yeah, that's my but opinion. yeah, it's it's going to be a little bit boring. Um, 
but nothing will give people anxiety and cause more fear than ranging sideways in these prices. Yeah. Retail. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the, it, I think it's a waiting game that people don't like. And it's actually a very small part of the market that is that main bull run. You know, it's, it's most of it, it seems that nowadays is in the sideways ranging until we set up. Um, and we've been doing that a long time now um, and probably got another few months ahead before that's really, we get that pent up demand to go really, to sort of blow past the the, the, the prior highs. Um, it's it's going to take time. And there's a lot of money that needs to come in to push Bitcoin around these days. Um, significant money. Yeah, um, you know, from, we right? talk about, it's very easy to say, well, it's just a 2X or it's just a 5X. Bitcoin just did that. I, I mean, I'm guilty of saying that, right? March, 2020, we were at 3,800. We pulled a 17X or whatever to the top. A 17X from here in terms of market cap oh and, and volume it ain't the same, right? I mean, I love to joke about it, but it's not the same. Yeah, it's like um, Bitcoin is a very low ratio from um, its market cap to the actual capital that's been stored in it. Um, I was just checking earlier today in um, a prior call um, that you know the average price um, of buying has been around 24,000, 25,000. So um, it's like, if you work that out across all the coins, it's like point four five trillion dollars and bitcoin's i think a shade under um, a trillion dollars right now so it's a kind of a two to one ratio if we're going to go what do you want let's say if we're 10x so right we're talking about um effectively five trillion dollars needs to come in <laughs> to give us that that 10x four or five trillion um that's a lot of money right that's like the entire it's got a really like um the entire like financial cap of gold um gold's you know only a certain percentage is used financially the rest is industrial right. um you've got to eat in the entire gold cap um financial cap to push bitcoin 10x so um we're really i think that when you think about it in that perspective it's like okay we've got to be really set up to take capital away from equities, real estate, um, you know, some of the big bond markets. I think that's going to happen with the yields, but it's yeah. going to take time before we, that sort of pulls in that next level of capital. Um, yeah. So, or or maybe, or maybe we just somehow get all the money that's being printed to go into Bitcoin, and we don't even worry about eating them because they'll print enough that we could get the <laughs> yeah, yeah, more. Um, we just need all the new money to come only into Bitcoin. More stimulus checks, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, that's like um, also that's kind of a unit, it's kind of a unit bias, really. It's just like everything gets revalued. Um, <laughs> but I'm talking about like real, we want to eat the capital and existing store of values. Um, and um, I'd be interested to hear like some of the, the more um you know experienced people in the macro markets like plan B or our policy, like what their views on is how Bitcoin will eat um that size cap capital and the kind of path that it will weave. Um, I think that'd be pretty interesting. It would, but the good news is, is that they do believe it will happen. Right. Mm. So I yeah. think, and I think we all still do. And I think that's sort of the important lesson here that we've both made before is just like, doesn't matter when, just be there when it does. Hold on yeah, long hopefully, enough. Hopefully it's going to happen like within the, the next five years. Um, <laughs> 
I'd, I would I would hate for this to drag on too long because I think um, you know we do really need a bit of money. Um, if we've got a competitor called Surveillance Money, Central Bank Digital Currencies, True. we can't hang around forever. Um, this thing needs to get big enough to be like um, past the point of no return to be. You know, we we need more countries involved. Um, El Salvador is one. Um, that's great. You know sovereign wealth fiat um, of one country but now we're at centralized risk because um, we've got one country and so That's, what if El Salvador's experiment goes bad it's going I talk be, about that like, all the time yeah we, right? we we cheer for it we assume it's going to be great but if it goes bad it's a lesson for nobody else to do it right yeah so we need others immediately so there's a more of a decentralized network of um, nation states um, so yeah like Sooner or better than like it's like now's the time. <laughs> yeah, um, if it, I think yeah, the clock's I ticking. Yeah, clock's ticking. Clock's ticking, and and the momentum is there, right? Like uh, you kind of talk about another three, like a, a one to three year bear market. Uh, we might not get there, right? Right, exactly. Like um, the central banks will be busy while we're bearing it out. Um, so, yeah, but luckily I don't see that happening. You know, well, yeah. I, hope we, I hope that plays out. Um, yeah. Good. Well, I hope we didn't depress anyone with the uh, ending conclusion because I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I do agree with you that now we need to strike while the iron is hot. So, Willie, I know we're up against it here with time. Where can everybody follow you and keep up with your work after this conversation? Um, I'm sometimes on Twitter. I don't post much, but um, that's Woonomic, um, at Woonomic at, on Twitter. I write a newsletter. Um, there's a link to it from my Twitter profile. Um, that newsletter, effectively, all the quant um, sort of on-chain analysis I do in association with Glassnode, just gives a sort of mid-macro, macro to even the shorter time frame forecast based on um, the data coming in. Um, and you know, it, it's it's mainly the the spot markets through the on-chain forensics. So it's mainly pitched at investors, um, but if you're a trader, it sometimes helps you bias your trades. Um, so it's yeah, very that's it. yeah, I can't, can't recommend enough. It's very, very helpful. I think it's definitely for traders because you have to have context before you have any sort of thesis on which direction the market's going. Right. I think so, but I just want to downplay it because you, I don't want to attract people into trading it and get, getting rich. I feel you. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll scale that back, but I stand by it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that's the whole podcast has been don't trade unless you really know what you're doing. And this well, is and I think that, you know, that, I think that that's a valuable lesson. I mean, 95% yeah. of traders fail. And when you hear the context of what's actually happening behind it, you can see why. Yeah. Very exactly. obvious. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, we're going to, you know, maybe six more months down the road, we'll do another uh, catch up and see if we were horribly uh, wrong or if we were actually nailed it. <laughs> Okay, sounds good. Look forward to it, Scott. Have a great day. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Yep.